Okay, thanks everybody. Welcome back to our second session on this third day of the uh, wonderful week-long uh, extravaganza we're having here at Shivani International College. Um, so this session is, uh, was titled The Outlawed Muse, or is titled The Outlawed Muse 2, Jacobean Shakespeare. But we didn't quite manage to finish Elizabethan Shakespeare, so we're going to start with the, the last of what would I want to say about Elizabethan Shakespeare. Because I want to begin with Hamlet, which was I was going to think I'd be finishing with Hamlet, but we didn't get there. Um, and Hamlet's written in the last years of the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Um, written probably 1600, 1601. Now again, as regards the, um, uh, the context of Hamlet, um, the background of Hamlet, it, what's happening in the bigger political picture in England at the time, is the Essex Rebellion. When the Earl of Essex uh, raises a rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. Um, now, again, most scholars, historical scholars, uh, uh, believe, I think with good reason, that Shakespeare was a sympathiser with the Essex Rebellion. Um, and one reason for that is that the Earl of Southampton, his patron, was actually uh, a major leader of the Essex Rebellion and the Earl of Southampton, uh, the, uh, the Earl of Essex will be put to death when the, when the rebellion fails um, um, and the Earl of Southampton will be sent to prison, although let out again uh, after a year or so. So uh, bear in mind that, that we have this turbulence, this anger against the government, uh, because we'll see, if you like, that the spirit of Hamlet, the play, and indeed Hamlet the person, is one very vitriolic, right? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of vitriol, there's a lot of anger in the play. Um, Queen Elizabeth I apparently said that, um, well, I did say this written record, that uh, Richard II, Shakespeare's play Richard II, was performed on the eve of the Essex Rebellion. Uh, and Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth said, said, do you not know that I am Richard? In other words, the play was put on to help incite people against the Queen. Now, there's a reference in the play, it's the most overt negative reference to Queen Elizabeth in any of Shakespeare's plays when referring to his mother, Gertrude, Queen Gertrude, Hamlet says uh, that having um, painting an inch thick on your face that does not hide the fact that you're old and haggard, basically. And of course, Queen Elizabeth at this stage you know, was wearing a you know, quarter of an inch white mask to hide you know, what she really looked like. So this was clearly seen as uh, a direct negative vitriolic reference to uh, Elizabeth herself. Um, remember, you know, in the few years since Merchant of Venice was written, and Roman Juliet was finished, written, uh, Robert Southerl has been martyred. It's entirely possible. Uh, I, 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 I um, might be going too far to say likely, we don't know, but entirely possible Shakespeare was amongst the large crowd that witnessed St. Robert Southerl's gruesome martyrdom. So, you know, this is all there. And Shakespeare's, uh, it was moving in a world as a Catholic where Catholics were always living in fear of spies. So the spy network, Elizabeth's spy network was so efficient that, uh, that Catholics did not know, when, who, you know who to trust, when they were going to be betrayed. 
uh, because they're two types of spies in that they're, 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 they're false converts, people that converted, but they were only converting in order to get into the Catholic world, but also genuine bona fide Catholics who were compromised, the old-fashioned, the, the age-long age tactic of espionage, compromised in, uh, through that behavior, maybe adulterous relationships or what have you, and blackmailed. And as long as they give information, then this is not going to become known. There's two types of, of, of spies. So one major part of Hamlet is, is, is this spy network. So bear that in mind, and a lot of anger, and bear that in mind. So again, I'm going to resist looking at that because we won't have time anyway. But uh, giving I, I, at the beginning of the chapter on, um, or not chapter, the, 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 the chapters on Hamlet in, in my book Through Shakespeare's Eyes, I quote Samuel Johnson on Hamlet, and I quote T.S. Eliot on Hamlet. And Eliot, in my judgment, is a much, much better poet than he is critic. Um, he often gets things wrong as regards his criticism. Um, one thing he gets wrong is that he <laughs> has the audacity to say that Hamlet is a failure artistically. Um, Hamlet's probably Shakespeare's greatest play, uh, arguably the greatest play ever written by anybody. Uh, and how anybody, even, even someone as elevated as T.S. Eliot, can claim that it's a failure. And he says it's a failure because, you know, it's basically an insoluble puzzle. That it, and, and the point is that there are two types of insoluble puzzle. Right? There's an insoluble puzzle that's objectively insoluble. In other words, it has no solution. But there's also an insoluble puzzle that has a solution, but it's insoluble for us. We can't solve it. And Eliot, quite frankly, if I'm going to accuse him of arrogance, because he could not make head nor tail of Hamlet, assumes that nobody can. And I hope to show that it's not actually that difficult to play. So let's um, look at, center our attention maybe on three characters. Um, Hamlet himself, of course, uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father, and Ophelia. Now, I think one of the uh, mistakes made about Hamlet is that he's a procrastinator, that he can't come to a decision, that he is un indecisive um, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, unable to expedite. In actual fact, the best uh, uh, adjective for him would be the adjectives that are often used for Penelope in the Odyssey. He's circumspect. And in the Odyssey, when, we, when, when Penelope is described as being circumspect, it's clearly a good thing. She's never reckless. She always thinks about things, prays about things, and, and doesn't act until she's sure about things. And this is Hamlet. He's not reckless, unlike certain other characters, like Polonius or Laertes. As for the ghost, well, well let's, uh, let's, uh, let's carry on for Hamlet for the moment. The, key thing about, the other key, key thing about Hamlet is the big mistake we make about Hamlet is to treat him as a static person. And often we see Hamlet and we can't get beyond the to be or not to be soliloquy. Now, he's a man in black who's angst-ridden, uh, tempted to despair, 
thinking about suicide, and the only reason he doesn't commit suicide is because of the fear of hell, otherwise he'd end it all. But that's only Hamlet at the beginning of the play. Hamlet is one of the most dynamic characters in all of Shakespeare, because Hamlet is the, the play is the ascent, as I said about Dante, in both senses of the word, A-S-C-E-N-T and A-S-S-E-N-T, of Hamlet. So it's an, an ascent to truth when he sees it and discovers it and knows it. And because of that ascent, it's an ascent in virtue. So the, whole, the Hamlet at the end of the play is very different from the Hamlet at the beginning of the play. He's anything but a static character. So if we want to think about Hamlet, we have to think about this dynamic person who's becoming someone else, not this static person who's wanders around in, 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 in the, sh the shadows contemplating suicide. Because that's only Hamlet at the beginning. So in this way, in this sense, we can see Hamlet as homo viator, as journeying man or man on a quest, man whose purpose is to go on the journey to reach the destination, to reach the resolution, to reach home. And we'll see to what extent Hamlet does that. Um, then let's move on to the ghost. The, so the, the ghost of Hamlet's father. Hamlet will not just accept the ghost at face value. First of all, we, by the way, the ghost is not an hallucination. Shakespeare makes it that perfectly clear by the fact that we have several inde independent witnesses who see the ghost. Right, it's not just a projection of Hamlet's imagination or psychosis. He's, it's an objective being of some sort. And what that being claims to be is the ghost of, of a Hamlet's father who's in purgatory. Now, bear that in mind, by the way, because, of course, Shakespeare's writing at a time when purgatory is, 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 is verboten, purgatory is forbidden. It's something the Anglican Church, the official religion, does not believe in. He could talk about it, of course, but by what we said, by the, the, uh, the literary device of setting his stories either in foreign countries like Italy, which are Catholic, or in the past, which is Catholic. In this case, both, a foreign country and in the past, Catholic. Um, so the ghost is in purgatory, and the ghost reveals something, that he was murdered and, and by his brother, who was having an adulterous relationship with his wife, and he was murdered by having poison poured in his ear. Well, there's a lot of detail there. Now, the ghost says who he is and says how he died, in detail. But Hamlet's not convinced. Not because he's a procrastinator, but because he's circumspect. What if the ghost is a liar? What if the ghost is not telling the truth? What if the ghost is a demon from hell and not a ghost in purgatory? Because, you know, again, from a Catholic perspective, if you're in purgatory, you're already in heaven, right? Um, you're basically being purged. It's the antechamber of heaven. It's a one-way street. No one's going, when they get to purgatory, no one's going anywhere except in one direction. So if he's in purgatory, he's telling the truth, because he can't tell lies. 
if he's in hell, if he's a demon, he's telling lies. So Habit has to work out whether the ghost is honest. And so how does he do that? Well, he, 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 he does it um, by the use of art. By the use, in fact, of a play. The mousetrap, the play within the play. So Hamlet uses the actors in this to replicate the means by which the ghost said he was killed by having poison poured in his ear. And while the king, Claudius, is watching the play reproduce what the ghost said he did to him, Hamlet's watching the king. And incidentally, before the play, one of the other great things about Hamlet is, is that through the words of Hamlet telling the, 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 uh, the actors what the purpose of, of drama is, we really have the voice of Shakespeare very rarely telling us what the power of art is. And he says that it holds up a mirror. It shows us who we are. In other words, it's, 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 it's something which shows us a deeper understanding of reality. He also says, by the way, don't ad-lib when you get to the, 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 uh, the parts being spoken by the fools. And it's not just, you can't just get the slapstick at that point, think you can do what you like and play for laughs, because maybe some of the wisest words and the most important and crucial words in the whole of the play are being said by the fool. So when the fool's speaking, don't switch off thinking it's light relief, listen. So Shakespeare's actually giving us here lessons about how to read his own plays. We should make a note of that. And of course then the play does reveal the truth because Hamlet does watch King Claudius and when King Claudius sees his act of murder, uh, regicide, homicide, fratricide, which also exposes adultery, right? It's, not, it's a whole catalogue of things wrong here. You know, and, and Hamlet watches King Claudius's response to his crime being reproduced and he comes up in horror and storms out. That's when Hamlet then knows that the ghost is an honest ghost. So the ghost is not a liar. In fact, the ghost can't lie because the ghost is who he says he is, a soul in purgatory, the ghost of his father. Another interesting thing towards the beginning of the play is the insistence by both Hamlet and the ghost um, that the other characters that have seen the apparition, they must swear that they won't tell anybody. It's a secret between them. And they swear by faith. And Hamlet says, no, swear upon the sword. And then the response is, well, we swear, we sworn by faith. That's all we need, swear by faith. Sola fide, by faith alone. No, says Hamlet, and no, says the ghost, echoing Hamlet, swear upon the sword. And of course, this is a major theological issue at the time. The Protestants say, you know, by faith alone, and the Catholics insist by faith and works. And the sword, you know, for the Crusaders onwards, of course, a sword is itself with the hilt cruciform, but often the Crusaders actually have a cross on the hilt. 
So it's, it's not that the sword is not just the sword, it's also the cross. Very important because, of course, swords then play a major part in the final denouement of the play. Right? So this, the sword is not just a sword but a cross in the final part of the play. So both the ghost who's in purgatory, and therefore a Catholic, and Hamlet are insisting upon the Catholic doctrine of faith and works, and not the Protestant doctrine of by faith alone. By, by faith alone. And then we have the character of Polonius. And Polonius is King Claudius's spy master. Now, again, bear in mind what the Catholics think of the spy network and William, Sir William Cecil, the spy master, the real life spy master, and his network of spies. Well, who is Polonius in the play? Well, let me take a step back, and I, I, I don't know if any of you, did I give my conversion story here last year? I didn't, okay, maybe you probably don't know this then, which is uh, another reason for telling it. So, back in my own school days, uh, I remembered, as I said, being taught Romeo and Juliet as a high school student back in London. Um, I also remembered, actually, I was talking to Mike Church, he said that he actually watched the Franco Zaffarelli in school. They brought a projector in and showed the movie in school, as well as reading it. And James is saying the same thing there. Well, it wasn't just an American thing, because they also brought it in and we watched it. Um, the Franco Zaffredi version of Roman Juliet. So certainly, get Roman Juliet completely wrong. But in my school, the school's motto, and it was emblazoned in great big letters ab ab above the stage in the gymnasium, the auditorium, this above all, to thine own self be true. William Shakespeare. Now, I'm a 15-year-old kid, and my father basically idolized England. He said, by the way, and uh, all of those in here who aren't English have to have a sense of humor, but my, but my, father, my father used to teach me he said, there are only three types of people in the world. He said, there are Englishmen. There are those who would like to be Englishmen. And there are those who don't know any better. <laughs> At which point I'll say, I know what I am. I'll leave you to have a you know, one worry about what you are. Um, so the, and for me, my father wasn't religious. But he, he converted to Catholicism as an old man, thanks be to God. But he wasn't religious, we were sort of agnostics. I mean, you know, he would have said if you put cornered him that, he, that he, he believed in Jesus, but we never went to church, we never prayed. So England was what, we, what was the most important thing. And for my father, the greatest Englishman who ever lived was William Shakespeare. And I love my father, he was a great influence upon me, for better or for worse. So for me, Shakespeare's the nearest thing I've got to a God. So I see this, this above all to thine own self be true, William Shakespeare. And I thought, well, I know my school is, is a really bad school. And by the way, it was, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. This, these are figures that weren't from the time I was there. But more recently, I think back in the 1990s, there was a, a survey. And the London borough of Barking and Dagenham had the worst school results of anywhere in the United Kingdom. 
And my school, Eastby Comprehensive, was the worst school in the borough of Barking Dagnall. So I have a legitimate claim to that I went to the worst school in England. So, so I, 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 knew, I knew that, uh, that, that, that I wasn't getting a great education. I knew it was biased, and I knew there was stuff going on in agendas. And, but I thought, at least I can take that as my own personal motto. This above all to thine own self be true. I'll do that. I'm going to live that. William Shakespeare. So at the age of 15, I joined a neo-Nazi organization. I get myself in all sorts of trouble. I won't give you my life story. By the grace of God, I came out the other end. But I was being true to myself. I mean, I was, I was actually doing what that motto told me to do. Because what I didn't realize at the time was that William Shakespeare never said that. Right? He wrote that, but it's Polonius who says it. They are Polonius's words, not Shakespeare's words. And Polonius is a wicked, relativist, spymaster, Machiavellian. That's who says that. And though that line, of course, comes in the midst of one of uh, the, the best-known speeches in Shakespeare's, Polonius's advice to his son, Laertes. So Laertes is about to go off to university. He's going to go off to Paris to university. So Polonius, as a good father, thinks, well, this is an appropriate time to give the, the pep talk. Okay? Still, my somebody needs to know if he's going to leave home and, and go and go to university, go to college. You know, that I, I better tell him some of the important things to know. Gives him his philosophy of life, his precepts. There's no mention of God, no mention of virtue, no mention of reason, no mention of faith, no mention of love in, the, in any sense, but certainly in, in, in the sense of laying down your life self-sacrificially for another. It's all about making the right friends, knowing when to speak up, knowing when to be quiet, don't lend money, don't borrow money, wear the right sort of clothes, and this above all, to thine own self be true. And just be true to yourself. In other words, in hippie language, do your own thing. So what one thing that Hamlet shows us through the character of Polonius is the danger of doing your own thing. The danger of thinking of yourself above all else. The danger of relativism. So by the end of the play, of course, Polonius gets himself killed, spying on Hamlet. Laertes then, following his father's philosophy, comes back in a rage and will not listen to reason. And because he's completely and utterly a slave of his passions, is a dupe, becomes a dupe uh, of, of King Claudius. King Claudius takes his rage and uses it. And the main reason he uses it, act now. In other words, do it now. Kill Hamlet now, before, basically, so he knows he's going to do it while, while he's angry, before he gets a chance to think about things. And we'll talk about Ophelia. Well, maybe we could talk about Ophelia now as well, because Ophelia is Polonius' daughter. And again, the play is normally shown that Hamlet's normally depicted negatively because of the way he treats poor Ophelia. And again, it's been a recent production of the play 
where you know, Ophelia becomes the victim and it's all about Shakespeare as a, uh, sorry, about Hamlet as sort of a, a abusive, or sort of a, a toxically masculine person, all right? Um, but now think about it. Hamlet knows Polonius is the spy master of Claudius. He now knows that Claudius killed his father. His, that Cla Claudius was having an adulterous relationship with his mother. And he loves Ophelia, Polonius' daughter, in spite of the fact that she is Polonius' daughter. And then he comes across Ophelia, pretending to read a prayer book because she's been stuck there against her conscience and her will, to be fair to her, to spy on Hamlet. And don't let out of your minds at any time the anger that Shakespeare and the Catholics in England are feeling towards the spy network. That's there. And so he discovers Ophelia, and at first he asks her to pray for him, and it's all very pleasant, and he turns suddenly and they get thee to the nunnery scene and you know how do you play that scene because what's happening is Polonius is spying and so is King Claudius both spying on ha ha Ophelia and Hamlet listening seems to me quite clear that that point where he suddenly turns in a madness is when he notices Right, that Claudius and Polonius are actually listening in. In other words, Ophelia is an accessory to this spy network and therefore an accessory to King Claudius's sin. And, it, and it's the woman he loves. This is an act of betrayal. And he turns in anger on her. Now this response, Hamlet's response, breaks Ophelia breaks her heart and breaks her mind. She basically loses her wits and apparently, although it's deliberately left vague, apparently commits suicide. She certainly ends up drowning in the river, either by suicide or accident, having seen them, she's obviously out of her wits, she's lost her mind. So Polonius's philosophy, the philosophy I followed, that led me astray, I'm not blaming Polonius, I had lots of other uh, things I blame myself for, but he didn't help, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, that uh, Polonius, what happens? Polonius gets himself killed in the act of spying on Hamlet. Laertes gets himself killed by, in his rage, becoming uh, a dupe of King Claudius. And Ophelia is driven mad because she's forced by her father to act against her conscience in betraying the man she loves. So, so what is Shakespeare telling us about relativism? Because Polonius is seen in that speech where he basically gives his philosophy of life as a relativist. That it's deadly, that it's destructive, that it's disastrous. And then we also have in the middle of Hamlet one of the longest Mr. Memento Mori's in the, days when the whole of literature, the famous graveyard scene which contains the, um, uh, the 
Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him Horatio speech when he's holding the skull of Yorick, of course. A long memento mori about the fact that the greatest people, Caesar, Alexander the Great, are now dust. Perhaps they're bungholes, you know, in a, a barrel. That's what happens to the great when they die. I would recommend some homework for you. When you get the time, read the whole graveyard scene from Hamlet and then read Upon the Image of Death by St. Robert Southall. Because Shakespeare is taking lines and taking the theme and, and even talking about Alexander the Great and other characters paralleling that poem. So Robert Southall was a best-setting poet. We know Queen Elizabeth herself read St. Robert Southall's poetry. We need to remember this. No one reads poets today. But, you know, it's sort of, it, it's, it could be argued the first ever novel was Don Quixote, which was published in 1606, right? That, so it hadn't been published at the time Hamlet was written. In the 1590s, the bestsellers were poets. And Robert Southern was a best-selling poet. People knew this. Shakespeare's audience would know that the, 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 the references to St. Robert Southall in this long memento mori scene in the graveyard. And so, as Hamlet continues to ascend in virtue and wisdom and love in the, in, in the, in the, to the extent that he learns to lay down his life for the other, for his country, for his God, that towards the end of the play, he quotes directly from the gospel, saying that there's not a sparrow that falls from heaven that our Lord doesn't know about, that God doesn't know about, so why do, what do, why do I need to worry? If it will be, it will be. He says it's the readiness is all. In other words, the play's been leading up to Hamlet's readiness. And then in the, the final climactic scene, and you think, well, this is the saddest of all plays because everyone's dead. Well, this is something to be said for that. Um, but what is it? We have the sword, which we've already seen earlier in the play, is also a euphemism for the cross, with poison upon it, which we've seen in other Shakespeare plays, including Romeo and Juliet, is a euphemism for sin. So the cross with poison upon it, the cross with, with sin upon it, is the crucifixion. And the treachery involved in putting the poison on the sword the crucifixion. And the sinners all die by their own poison. Queen Gertrude, we don't know for certain whether she knew it was poisoned, takes the chalice that King Claudius intended for Hamlet and drinks it herself. Maybe an act of suicidal penance, maybe a, an accident. But either way, she's killed by the poison of sin. Claudius, of course, is stabbed by the sword. He dies from sin, from poison. Laertes is stabbed by the poison on his own sword. Again, symbolism, and that speaks for itself, right? Killed by his own poison. He repents before he dies. He has a happy death. The only innocent victim, the only one who's, who's poisoned, 
but not by any poison that he's placed there, is Hamlet. And in that sense, Hamlet can be seen as a Christ figure. He's the innocent victim in this maelstrom of monstrosity. Which is why um, the final word spoken over his body is may flights of angels sing thee to thy rest, which is a line from the illegal Catholic Requiem Mass. So Shakespeare actually sings a requiem over the body of Hamlet. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. Now, I, I, I ask a question, I think, when I write about this in the book, about, you know, can we be happy with this ending? Everybody's dead, right? Um, including Hamlet, who's an innocent victim. And I, I, the first thing I say was that, that Shakespeare is a Christian realist, not merely just in his philosophy, but in his mode of art. It is true that sin poisons the world. It is true that, that, true that sin destroys lives, especially the lives of the sinner. But it's also true that sin destroys the lives of innocent victims, including, first and foremost, Christ himself. So insofar as it reflects reality, as Hamlet tells us himself when he's talking about the play within the play, we should be content. But the other thing about it, of course, is that justice is done. Fortin Brass takes over the tyranny of the wicked king, who, by the way, whose sin he would have got away with without divine intervention, right? The soul from purgatory revealing the crime. If that divine intervention had not revealed and exposed the crime, King Claudius would be living on the throne with his ill-gotten gains, including Queen Gertrude. A wicked king over a wicked kingdom. Now we have a restoration of justice to the kingdom. The something rotten in the state of Denmark has been purged. That's not an unhappy ending. And as for Hamlet, we know that flights of angels are singing him to his rest. All of his suffering's over. He's going to heaven. Now when you actually see things in a Christian perspective, and if you, if you take the definition of, uh, of, of uh, a comedy to be a happy ending, we can and should even see Hamlet in some sense as being a comedy. Because things actually do end happily if you understand things on that deeper level. All right. Any questions on Hamlet before we move on? Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no definitive evidence from the text of the play that whether the adulterous relationship, well, whether the relationship began prior to the king's death. Um, we, we don't know for certain. Hamlet's obviously disgusted from the beginning that she could possibly marry the man so soon after her husband has just died. Um, but we don't know for sure that she was an adulterer. And, and, and when Hamlet sort of, again, another brilliant scene, when he basically lays down the law in very profound Christian terms about the sins she's committed. Um, again, we're not told... It could be, yeah, 
no, it, she doesn't say I have committed uh, adultery, but she certainly has a very, very wretched conscience, right? She, she, she obviously feels wretched and she has a conscience for what she's done, but that's not, that doesn't say definitively that... So we don't know that it was adulterous on her part, um, but I think we can safely say that King Claudius had adulterous designs um, in, in his heart towards her, and that was part of the reason he killed his brother. So. Poet. Well, I, I, I presumably not. The fact that he married immediately after. Immediately but, after. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, the, uh, yeah. So the the, the most <laughs> difficult charge against uh, King Claudius uh, um, to prove is adultery. I mean, fratricide, regicide, homicide. Uh, 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 yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Good question. Uh, so going along with the uh, with the Gertrude theme. Um, what is your understanding or interpretation of um, the ghost's instruction for Hamlet to not go after Gertrude, and he in some ways does, um, especially in that closet scene? Actually, the ghost is there in that closet scene. It's quite interesting, by the way, that um, Queen Gertrude can't see him. Because mm -hmm. we know he's real, so he's not just a projection right. of Hamlet's imagination. Um, so I don't, you know, we can maybe think about what that means or signifies. Um, that's, that, that's actually a very good question. I, 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 that within the context of the play, it's a very important scene because it allows Shakespeare, through the voice of Hamlet, to really lay down the law about um, Christian marriage, adultery, virtue, chastity, etc. Oh, thank you. God bless you. Um, uh, but yes, so he hasn't managed to, uh, to completely not get involved with his, with his mother. But I think that what the, the, the ghost is actually saying is don't take vengeance upon her. He's not necessarily saying don't speak to her, you know, don't talk to her, don't, you know. So I don't know whether we can actually say he's, that Hamlet is defying the ghost. The ghost who's there doesn't say you're defying me. Um, so I, I, he, he, the, the ghost just says, just don't take it out on your mother, which is just the way of the ghost saying he still loves her, right? Um, uh, so yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if there's a definitive answer. Yes. Very interesting um, interpretation of Hamlet. And I just was thinking that I've seen quite a few productions over the years, and in all of them, without exception, Polonius is treated as a buffoon. Yes, exactly. And only a buffoon. And, and that's all they can see in him. He's just right. a, a, he's Because Hamlet mocks him. Right. They take him just as an, an idiot. Yes. But, 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 but of course, he's, as you say, he's actually the most sinister of characters. Uh, the sort of type we saw in the Soviet Union. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Exactly, and he does mock him, but even when he mocks him, I would suggest, of course, it's how the director or the producer decides to play it, but you know, I would suggest that even when Hamlet is mocking Polonius, such as, for instance, when he says, doesn't that cloud look like a whale? I think it does look like a whale. And actually, I think it looks like a stoat or a weasel, which is a common weasel. Yeah, it does look like a weasel. Um, in other words, what he's, he's sh showing a few things, right? He's showing, first of all, that Polonius will tell, you, will tell a lie any lie you want him to tell, right? He has no truth in him. But he's also, I think, on a deeper level, lampooning relativism. 
You know, Chesterton actually says in, in one of his essays that the, the two philosophies, there's the philosophy of the tree, which is rooted in reality, and there's the philosophy of the cloud, which is formless and just you know, risks off in whatever direction the wind blows. And, and that, you know, that's, that's definitely what Hamlet is basically accusing Polonius of there. But I would suggest that the way those lines should be delivered, yeah, he's, he's mocking him, but I think there's venom in his voice, right? Vitriol. I've been reading the um, interesting um, memoirs of Shostakovich, and he was a master at that type of irony that right. you could use in the Soviet Union without explicitly criticizing the regime. Right. But everybody would have understood exactly. what exactly. it meant. I think, that there are, there, there, I think that the parallels are palpable between the way that the, the Soviet dissidents conveyed truth through art uh, without getting themselves arrested and the way that Shakespeare conveys truth through art without getting himself arrested. I think the parallels are palpable. Yes? Um, your comment about um, a happy ending Oh, you could say that about a lot of tragedies, yes. especially all of all the political ones, where there's um, an obvious argument that we've potentially a right to take up arms against a, a bad king. So in you know, King Lear and Macbeth and uh, and Hamlet, what's interesting is the people who take up arms and who win are actually legally entitled to do so because Hamlet presumably would be the just King, if the truth were, were told, right. King Lear, you know, is coming back to take up his throne. The um, Malcolm and, and, and Macbeth and so on. So all of these people, they're, they're they're actually the ones who are entitled to exact the death penalty, which is what these people deserve for their crimes. Right, and, and what actually, so. quite of course, in Hamlet's case, you know, he he can't seek redress through his peers, right, because the power of the throne has been usurped by King Claudius. Right? There are no peers that Hamlet can, can turn to. So uh, the only way that, that, that justice can be done is through violence. Such as pertained in, in England, England at the time, perhaps. In England say. at the time. And, it's only, and, and the Essex Rebellion was going on at that time. It's around the time it's been written. Shakespeare you know, is, is strongly believed to have been sympathetic to the, to, to the, up, to the uprising. So he clearly believes that there's a just cause. mindful of Henry VIII, Elizabeth's father, and that situation of putting aside Catherine and marrying somebody, because in, isn't in the, um, one of the church's rules you do not marry your brother's yes. wife? Isn't there spiritual, um, I can't remember the three things, consanguinity, affinity and spiritual Yeah, well, That was one of the arguments that, King, uh, that uh, Henry used for the fact that his marriage with Catherine was invalid, so uh, <laughs> um, that, 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 whole, that whole situation is too convoluted and I don't know it well enough to, oh, okay. to go beyond that. But, but one wasn't consummated and one also, Henry's well, they were both constant. I mean, if you talk about no, the, the 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 relationship between the brother and the, the betrothed. Oh, well, yeah. Now again, Henry's that's the argument. Situation. The argument is that right. the, the earlier marriage wasn't from. wasn't valid because it wasn't consummated. Right. So, yeah. So, you said that everyone that died in the plague, besides Hamlet, died as an effect of their own poison, but except for Hamlet. Except for Hamlet. But what about Hamlet's father, who had poison in his ear? Was that a was that his own doing or could that be also seen as...? Well, you know, that's a, good, that's a very good question. I, I was talking about those involved at the end of the play, but the, you know, yeah, obviously, the, uh, before the play begins, Hamnet's father is murdered. 
unjustly. And as he says in that opening speech, and again, another direct reference to Catholicism, he was murdered without the benefits of the last rites or of confession, you know, both of which were illegal in England at the time. So, um, and that's why he's in purgatory, not in heaven, right? <laughs> um, so, uh, yes, uh, but he is on his way to heaven. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, he's an innocent, innocent victim of sin, but he's not going to hell. Um, so, uh, right, good question. Father, he just wants to make you work. <laughs> what you just said, what about the, the, the scene where Hamlet won't kill Claudius because Claudius is at his prayers and he keeps hoping that Claudius will... Very good. ...will, uh, will seek forgiveness. And Claudius, of course, does the kind of, well, I, I did it all, but I, I'm not sorry. Yeah, that's, that, that is uh, the, the most, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The most cringeworthy part of the whole play because, you know, you know the, the situation is, is that Hamlet's going to kill King Claudius and he has the perfect opportunity because King Claudius is kneeling at prayer. Now I'll do it. And then he thinks, well, if I kill him now in prayer and he just repent all his sins, I'm sending him to heaven. I mean, what sort of punishment is that, you know? Um, and then he says, well, I'm going to wait until he's, uh, you know, in the midst of his adulterous relationship and kill him in the act of uh, fornication and make him send him to hell. You know, and, and you sort of think, this is when we feel least sympathetic towards Hamlet, actually, because you think, you know, so he, he, he wants to kill the man and not just kill him uh, to restore justice, uh, but actually to, set, to condemn the man to hell, which is certainly going far further than any of us have the right to do, right? Um, so that's what that, if you, if you like, that's the low point. And remember what I said about Hamlet being a dynamic character, right? The, 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 this is where we see, then here he's, he's being circumspect, but not necessarily in a good way, right? Um, uh, and the irony, of course, as you rightly say, so he says, I'm not going to do it, I'll do it later. And, and, later. and then the irony is, of course, that if he had done it then, he would have sent King Claudius to hell because King Claudius is trying to pray. And he thinks about, well, I can't just pray for forgiveness. I also have to actually... Uh, pay, pay as well as pray by confessing the sin, which means I'll be put to death, right? Um, and lose all my power and everything. And he thinks, well, that's too high a price to pay. I think I'll just live with the sin, right? So in actual fact, if, 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 if he had killed him, he would have sent him to hell. There's the irony, or if you like, the providential irony uh, in it. But certainly I think that's the moment in the play when we feel least sympathy for Hamlet, even though overall he's a, he's a character who's on this ascent, he's a very dynamic character, similar to Friar Lawrence, right? When Friar Lawrence, in, in his cowardice, deserts Juliet in her moment, everyone deserts Juliet in a moment of needs. In that sense, Juliet really is a tragic figure. Um, uh, that's when we feel less, least, least sympathy towards Friar Lawrence, but the, ju the, the judgment of the prince is we still have known the for a holy man, and I think we're having it, same thing. In spite of that scene, which makes us go, ooh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> you know, we, we, we still have known him as a holy man. Okay, let's move on. So what are we going to do next? I'm going to do Macbeth, but somewhat more briefly. So hopefully it's a brief play, one of the shortest. So from the longest to one of the shortest. Um, And I, now, first thing I want to say about when Macbeth was written, because we've now been moving to Jacobean Eng England, 1606, uh, Annus Mirabilis, right? It's, it's the, the year of three of the greatest and darkest of Shakespeare's plays. In that one year, Macbeth, King Lear, and Othello. Something very dark's happening 
in Shakespeare's life when he's writing those plays. So let's unpack that a bit. So when Shakespeare writes Hamlet, in 1600, 1601, about the time of the Essex Rebellion, Queen Elizabeth's an old woman. And, um, now let me make sure I've got the time right here. So we're finishing at, uh, at 12.30, is that right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Queen Elizabeth's an old woman. She's going to die soon. So the, 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 the psychological aspect of, of, of the Catholics of England is that we just have to hang on, right? Because she can't live forever. She's an old woman. Um, and her successor is going to be King James VI of Scotland, who will become, become King James I of England. King James is not a Catholic, but he's married to a Catholic. Um, and he has promised that he will um, restore religious liberty to, to England's Catholics. So they were just waiting and hanging on for the tyrant to die and then freedom to be restored. So in 1603, when Queen Elizabeth dies, first of all, when Queen Elizabeth dies, the poets of England all line up to write eulogies to the Virgin Queen, uh, except one. William Shakespeare is notably silent on the issue, does not write anything about the death of Queen Elizabeth. Um, and indeed, another poet challenges him to write about Queen but obviously designed, knowing Shakespeare's a Catholic, designed to put Shakespeare on the spot, and he, still, again, nothing from Shakespeare about the death of Queen Elizabeth, no words of praise. What we do have, however, is the first play he writes after the death of Queen Elizabeth, which is called All's Well That Ends Well. And that, and that does reflect you know, the, the real optimism that the English Catholics felt at the time. The other play that was written that year, 1603, is Measure for Measure, which is arguably the most overtly Catholic of Shakespeare's plays, with the religious sister as the heroine. Um, and there was, for a, a brief honeymoon period, the restoration of freedom to England's Catholics. And people were very surprised at how many Catholics there still were, because people were just coming out of the woodwork, masses were being celebrated all over the place. And this great sense of elation after, by this stage, I mean, Queen uh, Elizabeth was on the throne for 44 years. So this great sense of elation and of relief. But by this stage, the Puritans were gaining so much power, they already really had a great deal of power in Parliament. And they were not going to tolerate the toleration of Catholicism and made it clear in no, no uncertain terms to the king that, sorry, we, we are not going to permit, we're not going to stand idly by, we are going to resist your liberating of the Catholics. So what King James I does, he's in an insecure position, he's a new king, he's Scottish, right? So you know, it's very easy for the Puritans to start whipping up you know, animosity towards the foreign king. He knows he's in a, a weak position. So he weighs up the situation. Who has more power? Who do I have to please most? The Catholics or the Puritans? And he says, well, clearly the Puritans control Parliament. If I'm going to be able to rule here, I've got to go with them. 
So all the anti-Catholic laws are brought back. Now try to put yourself in the minds and the hearts and the emotions of England's Catholics. 44 years of tyranny, of persecution, a brief taste of liberty, and then the darkness descends again. Well, in many cases, many Catholics surrendered. Now, we held on throughout the whole of the period of Queen Elizabeth I. We've now got a young king on the throne who could be on the throne for another 40 or 50 years. Sorry, can't do it anymore. And they conform. At the other extreme, the young hotheads. Well, clearly now, we've got We've tasted freedom, it's been taken away from us. We have this young king, we have this Puritan parliament. There's only, we only have one possible recourse now, one, one possible course of action, violence. And so the, the gunpowder plot is hatched. And the real tragedy of that is that it was set up, it was set up by King James's spy network which is why that the, these young men could get all the gunpowder, could get access to the Houses of Parliament, could get all, everything directly in place so they could be caught red-handed in flagranti delecto, right, right at the very moment. There's no defense whatsoever. They were dupes. They were actually, in many ways, in a position of Laertes from Hamlet. Their anger was being used against them. And so then, of course, you know, the Puritans can turn to the king and say, see these Catholics? They're all, every Catholic's a threat to your majesty, to your majesty's life. They're all traitors. And so then the persecution stepped up another level. This is, the, the, so the gunpowder plot's November uh, 1605. These three plays are what Shakespeare writes in the wake of that, 1606, Othello, Macbeth, and King Lear. That's the darkness that pervades in these. But so what does he say? How does Shakespeare respond? So we have the, those who surrender, those who choose violence, and what's Shakespeare's position? So in Macbeth, and I would say, by the way, there's a very interesting parallel. I, I suggest if you have time, to get the Ignatius critical edition of Macbeth, and my introduction in that, uh, there was a play that was a huge success very briefly on the, uh, on the stage in London uh, shortly after uh, James I's um, accession to the throne, maybe about 1604, um, called The Tragedy of Gowrie. And it was a play that depicted the real life King James when he was just King James VI of Scotland. Something that happened where basically there was a family, a clan, the Galvey clan in Scotland, who were a pain uh, in the thorn in the side of, uh, of, of, uh, of King James. And they were very rich and a lot of land. So King James visits them and they try to kill him. Uh, allegedly, and allegedly, once the, the, the once the, the murder is uh, is um, uncovered, they also discover satanic 
trappings in the Gowrie family. So the Gowries, the Gowries are basically obliterated and King James uh, awards himself as cons compensation for this attempt on his life uh, all of the Gowrie property to himself. And, the Gow and he also owned a huge amount of money to the Gowrie family. And of course, that debt was wiped off. It's all very convenient for the king. So there's the, the play, The Tragedy of Gowrie, came out and, and was packed houses very shortly, very briefly, and then it was banned. Unfortunately, the actual play, we know that it was performed because of the records, we don't, the play itself is not extant. And of course it was banned because, you know, contemporary religion and politics and deeds against the king himself. So what Shakespeare brings out a play called Macbeth, about a Scottish king. And although it's a coincidence, the real Macbeth did exist, of course. And, you know, and Shakespeare, by the way, it's a big mistake to accuse Shakespeare of being a bad historian because he wasn't trying to be an historian. And he's using his history plays basically to, to, to do what he wants as a, as, as a, as a dramatist to, to uh, uh, comment upon his own times. So the Macbeth is not meant to be a real, what, real life of Macbeth. It's meant to be, how do I use this story from Scotland's past to uh, reflect the situation today? Macbeth, Fortunate coincidence, of course, means son of Beth, son of Elizabeth, um, which, of course, that's an insult because King James is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was killed on the orders of Elizabeth. But what's implicit there, of course, is you're the same as she was. There's no difference. And Macbeth can be seen very, very much as an anti-Hamlet in terms of structure and in terms of the, 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 the character in each case, because whereas Hamlet begins in a low place in despondency and on the, on the edge of despair, and through his circumspection and through Christian revelation, supernatural intervention, the ghost, he ascends to a readiness to do the will of God and to lay down his life for his people. Macbeth, on the other hand, begins in a very good place. Right? He's a hero in the wars and everybody uh, is, is, is praising him and he gets, uh, you know, uh, uh, honours and what have you. And the parallel is, right at the beginning of both plays, there's supernatural intervention. Right? In the case of Hamlet and Macbeth, of course, the weird sisters or the witches, whatever you want to call them. Um, so, whereas Hamlet goes to considerable pains to ensure that the ghost is really an honest ghost, the ghost of his father. Macbeth just listens to these words, doesn't ask, well, you know, are they, are they honest? Are they tell, where are they coming from? Is it, is it demonic or is it, or, or is it angelic? He, Macbeth is the opposite to circumspect. He's reckless. Which is why Macbeth's a very short play. And Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet, by the way, uh, have in common the, their fast pace. In other words, the recklessness of the characters uh, sets the pace of the play. Hamlet's the longest because he's circumspect, right? He's taking his time. Um, so then we see the descent of Macbeth, egged on by his wife, to become a, essentially a mass murderer. And whereas Hamlet ends with quoting from the gospel, says the readiness is all and dying for his country, the innocent victim of other people's poison. Macbeth ends up in a state of despair with those lines that we quoted earlier. You know, that life 
is a tale told by an, an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Nihilistic despair. So uh, Shakespeare, very dark play. Connections with King James as a Machiavel in the same spirit as Elizabeth who goes to hell because of Machiavellianism. Right. So Lady Macbeth, so you, it's good. That's good. So basically you say there's an analogous parallel between Lady Macbeth and Elizabeth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. Not sure I want to say much more Macbeth because we do only have 20 minutes left. We haven't even got to King Lear yet. Um, any questions as regards Macbeth? Yes. Also, types that are pointing to somebody because they're, you know, they're the most fun characters to watch in the play. So, are, are they pointing to like maybe three philosophers at that time or three political commentators or something? Not that I'm aware. I okay. mean, that, it, 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 I, one, the one thing I would say though, go back to the earlier point I made about history. I mean, there are, there are, there are two definitions of history. History is everything that's happened in the past, and history is our record of everything that's happened in the past, which is not the same thing, right? Uh, and we, we do need to be aware at all times that we're dealing with fragments. And one thing, again, I would love to do and I would love to have done by, 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 by responsible scholars is a really thorough documentation of what's going on, who the major influences are from, you know, during the period that Shakespeare's writing his plays, um, what's going on in the background, so that, you know, because the more we know about that, the more that the plays will come to life. So you know, what we do know is, is not the full picture and, and we, we really need to be moving you know, with more. Yeah. Uh, all, all of the yeah. equivocator and uh, just j jars against everything else in the... Again, yeah, a, a, a wonderful question. Uh, the porter in, in, in Macbeth sort of... Uh, uh, he, he sort of says scathing things about equivocation, which is an indirect uh, reference to the Jesuits. Um, but who's the porter, right? He's, he, he's a drunken base character. So again, what's the voice that's saying it? So, you know, so yeah, he's an anti-Catholic, but look at him, right? Um, so that, that's, that would be my response to that. Yeah. So in, with uh, Queen Elizabeth, when, when Hamlet was presented and she said that she was the queen that was presented in the play. Was there a similar sort of tension? Like, what was Shakespeare's relationship with royalty when James was on the throne? Because I assume King James knew that Mick, uh, Macbeth was supposed to be him, but what was the, or, or perhaps not, but what was the, how, how safe was Shakespeare in the Jacobean? I think, I think with Macbeth, he treads as close as he ever did. Um, I do think that, that, that King James would have known that was about him. Shakespeare is very popular, um, and uh, James is not going to unnecessarily uh, alienate people. You know, he's placated the Puritans, they're happy. He's obviously angered the Catholics. He's not particularly interested in angering them anymore. Uh, so, and, you know, and it's not, of course, and it would, it, would look, it would be difficult to prove, wouldn't it? Right? <laughs> 
You know, I'm, I'm writing about a king that's been dead 500 years. What are you talking about, right? Um, Right. Yes. Yes. It's a fiction, but it, he, so when you get that trail of right. of kings, it ends with with King James. So, so right. he's kind of pacifying him with that. Yeah, and also about that about the Stuarts, by the way. You know that, that was Shakespeare's position anyway. That the Stuart, anyway, he the, 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 the Catholic position was that Elizabeth was illicit as a queen. Uh, therefore usurp it. Mary Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart was the true ruler and you know one of the recurring features in the Elizabethan plays is the, 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 the usurpation of power by those who, who, who do not have the right for it. So in other words these are analogies to Elizabeth. There's none of that following the, the election of James because he's not questioning James's legitimacy as king. Um, he's obviously gonna, he, he considered to be a tyrant but he's a legitimate tyrant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fact that these are in such proximity that to, to Hamlet itself and how he used so effectively in that play, the play within the play, to expose Claudius. Do you think that this is him a bit making, making Macbeth be the audience of his own quote-unquote play within, within the play, that Macbeth is, uh, is, that James is really alive and he is really going on, but he uses Macbeth as the play within the play of of James's life to show him, because he had already used that same didactic method in Hamlet to, right. to deduce Well, certainly, the certainly in Hamlet, what he's saying in the play within the play is that my plays and all, you know, all good art is serving to expose evil and to reveal truth in society and to show us ourselves, to show us reality. So in that sense, Macbeth is meant to be a, a play within the, like the bigger play, which is human history. You know, the, you know uh, the world's a stage, as Shakespeare says, right? Um, uh, so that's certainly true, and we can see, you know, that perhaps, you know, that the Macbeth is the mousetrap for for King James, and he's hoping he's going to see it. And uh, you know, I, how he responds, I don't know. I mean, the quality of mercy speech would suggest that Shakespeare was hoping that Elizabeth might listen to Portia. You know, maybe he might might have been hoping that, that James would listen to Macbeth, but um, yeah. Saying like right. maybe he's he's trying in a subtle way to because James had given them that momentary respite, right. you know that that cause for hope and that here he could show him again. Right. Remember, only only what three years ago I wrote Hamlet and it ended with the demise of everyone. Right. Could you just exactly? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I do think that's true. I'll take there was one more, was one more question. I'll take it, but we've only got fifteen minutes for, Mer for the Merchant of Venice. And uh, James was supposed to have a, a, a fear of witches. Do you think Shakespeare put his witches in as a sort of jibe? Oh, that's good. Well, certainly that's a, that's actually a good point because it, it is generally well. Say uh, several people have observed that Shakespeare takes the Catholic view of ghosts in Hamlet as opposed to King James's Protestant view because King James's Protestant view is that ghosts are always demonic. Uh, and the Catholic view is not necessarily, right? They, they could actually be the souls of, of, of tormented uh, purgatorial spirits. Um, so Shakespeare actually takes the Catholic view in, 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 in the ghost not being a demon. In other words, when Hamlet addresses the question, he comes to the cat where the truth is, the Catholic understanding of ghosts. So that being so, then yes, it could be sort of, you know, well, you believe it, you make this big thing about demons, well, you, perhaps you're listening to demons, right? Um, maybe that, that might be a very good point. Yeah. All right, King Lear. Again, I, I mean, I, when I'm asked what's my favourite Shakespeare play, I always oscillate between either Hamlet or Lear. Um, 
many people will think it's one of the saddest and most depressing of plays, and I actually um, think there's lots of great, good stuff going on in it. Um, we know something about the historical context, 1606, with Macbeth and Othello. So in the play, structurally, if you like, there are characters that are always good. In other words, they're static, in the sense that they're not, on a, you know, they're not moving towards conversion or, or becoming more corrupt. Uh, and they're characters that are bad, and there are, are, there are two characters that are dynamic, have dynamic conversions. So the good characters are Cordelia, Kent, Edgar, France, and Albany. The evil ones are Goneril, Regan, Cornwall, and Edmund. And the two that have uh, conversion con uh, experiences are King Lear and Gloucester. So that, if you like, is, is the structure of the play. Now look at the situation. There's great parallels between King Lear and Antigone. We didn't have much time to talk about Antigone, right? But it's the same sort of setup. Because the, the beginning of the play, the king sets a test with it for his three daughters to say, you love me above all else. So in other words, the state, the secular power above all else. Regan and Goneril outdo each other in lying because they say they love the, the king more than all else, but they're not telling the truth, as the play obviously shows. The one daughter who really does love him, loves him so much she's not going to play the game. She chooses to love and be silent. And her rationale is, and she says this, that I will give you that love which is right fit, that love which is decorous. I will give you the love that's due to you as my king and as my father but I can't give you the love that's due to my husband when I meet him. And of course, as with Shakespeare, various times, that when we talk, start talking about bride and bridegroom, we're talking also metaphorically of Christ and the church. So he, she, on the one hand, she's saying, I can't, can't love you uh, to the exclusion of everybody else. When I get married, my, my husband has, has a legitimate right to that part of my love that, that, that the wife gives to her husband. But she's also saying that I, as a bride, in other words, as a member of the church, have to give the love that's due to the bridegroom, to Christ. I can't give all my love to you. It's the exact situation that Catholics in England are in. Do they sell their souls like Regan and Goneril and just give all their power to the secular power, so all their love to the secular power? Or do they suffer the consequences of resistance? So she's, of course, is um, exiled. There's a wonderful line about truth's a dog, you know, that basically is left out in the cold while, uh, you know, I, I, um, I can't remember the phrase now, but, but that, uh, the corrupted uh, are standing by the fire and, and stinking, basically. So in other words, you choose comfort and stink or you choose suffering left out in the cold, truth's a dog that's exiled, basically, to the cold. And the other marvellous thing about King Lear are the fools. Remembering what Hamlet says about listen to the fools. Because there are two fools in the play. And Shakespeare makes one of the um, most fundamental errors. You know, I said about, you know, in a creative writing class, you don't do what Homer does, give the whole plot away on the first page. Well, 
what one thing you don't do in your creative writing class, you don't introduce a major character who has many of the best lines and he disappears without explanation halfway through the story. And that's what happens. The fool just disappears, falls off the face of the face of the earth. And now, you, you know, I either say that Shakespeare is an incompetent playwright, which is clearly not the case. It's not a bad play, not, it's not bad, it's not bad writing. So why does that happen? Well, because he's replaced by another fool, by uh, uh, poor Tom, uh, Edgar. And the fool's wisdom is worldly wisdom. All the fool's lines are, you were stupid when you gave your power away to those sisters of yours. You have no power now, you're an idiot. That really is the extent, for all his wit, of the fool's perspective. It's a very worldly perspective. You should have held on to your power and not have been an idiot by trusting those two people. But then when the Christian fool comes along, the Franciscan, now the poor Tom, who says, um, so at the end of Act 2, Scene 2, uh, the character of Kent says, nothing almost sees miracles but suffering. Nothing almost sees miracles but suffering. And that's the, right at the end of uh, Act 2, Scene 2. And then the very first line of Act 2, Scene 3 is, Edgar says, Edgar, I nothing am. In other words, to see miracles, you have to be nothing. To be stripped of everything. To be naked. And so the foolishness of poor Tom is that you have to fight the devil, you have to fight sin, you have to be, you have to be, uh, you have to be uh, a penitential spirit, you have to be contrite, you have to seek forgiveness, you have to trust God, you have to embrace poverty, you have to want nothing worldly. And that's when King Lear says, this is, the, this is wisdom, you know, so in the madness, and he says, off, off you lendings, and strips his clothes off and he's naked. Off, off you lendings. Now think about that. All that we have here, including our life itself, is lent. It's not ours. Shakespeare, by the way, talk, talk, talks in several places about, you know, um, used the word owed. And it's often glossed as owned. No. Sorry, when Shakespeare used the word owed, he means owed, not owned. We don't own our lives, we owe our lives. So this is the, the wisdom, and, and when he strips off naked, of course, and how does, um, uh, how does uh, um, Shakespeare frame this, this, this eloquent madness of poor, poor Tom, which leads to this conversion of the king? Poor Tom sings a Franciscan ballad. Out from the dark hawthorn blows the cold wind, and that's a Franciscan ballad. So he's framing it with, with the, the, the spirit of St. Francis, and then King Lear strips himself naked, which of course will be seen exactly as what Francis did when his, when his father says to Francis, now stop being so foolish, don't you realize that I, you, you owe me even the clothes on your back? And he took his clothes off. Off, off you lendings, and walks off into the woods. So 
a large part of this play, of course, is that what is sane to the world, to the secular fool, is madness to the Christian. And what is sane to the Christian is madness to the world. Never the twain shall meet. And I just want to finish, because we are getting short of time here, with the most exciting thing personally about my engagement with King Lear. There was a lizard down there, and I'd rather not kill it. It seems to have run off somewhere. Um, can't talk about St. Francis than treading the lizard, can you? That would not be right. That would not be right. Um, the serpent's head, perhaps. So this is the, the, my, one of my favorite speeches in the whole of, 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 of Shakespeare is King Lear's Come Let's Away to Prison speech in, at, right near the end of the play. And I'm sitting in Rome, in a restaurant in Rome, and I've just had this wonderful meal. I'm by myself, I had this wonderful meal, and I've drank half a bottle of red wine. So I'm now going to do nothing else except sit there and drink the other half of the bottle of red wine. Um, feeling very happy. And I'm reading the collected poetry of St. Robert Southall. And as I'm reading the collected poetry of St. Robert Southall, I come across this poem called Decease Release. And it's written in the first person in the voice of Mary, Queen of Scots, on the eve of her execution. Now, first of all, this is a very powerful poem because it's written by someone, the poet, who himself will be executed. So the first, it's written in the first person, so the voice is that of Mary, Queen of Scots. It's written by a poet who's going to suffer the same fate as Mary, Queen of Scots. And in the poem, Mary, Queen of Scots talks about how she's dying for her faith and she says that her sacrifice will be pleasing in the eyes of the Lord um, and in her in being crushed you know that the fragrance will will rise to heaven pleasing like incense and I will be as God's spice and I thought God's spice because in that speech the end of King Lear. King Lear says, come, let's away to prison. We can laugh at those gilded butterflies, those courtiers and all their gold clothes. Laugh at them, and we could be as God's spies. And of course, this connection between God's spies and God's spies is a connection between martyrdom and Jesuits, particularly, or Catholic priests in, in general. And Sir Robert Southall, perhaps, in particular. So, Shakespeare playing on words here is basically bringing intertextually sort of Robert Southall's presence into King Lear's speech when they're both going to be go off to prison, happily off to prison, because they're, they're victims of a tyranny. They're going to laugh at the gilded butterflies. They're going to laugh at the foolishness of the fool and his worldliness and accept the poverty of poor Tom and be as God's spies. And then, the, is this a really, you know, people think this is the saddest play of Shakespeare. The final vision that King Lear has is of the resurrection. He sees the dead Cordelia breathing. He sees her coming back to life. Now, you can say that's because he's mad and delirious. You can say that if you like. But he dies very happily. And certainly from a Christian perspective, He's going to heaven. 
she's going to heaven because they're both blameless victims of tyranny. You know, and you have to see that the, 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 the final ending of any Shakespeare play is not the end of Act 5, it's the beginning of Act 6, right? Or the eighth day, if you want to be mystical, right? The, the eternity. How is that ending? Well, for Macbeth, not very well. Macbeth's a tragedy, but King Lear's not. But then right at the end of the play, the final words, I, can't, I haven't got the whole thing here, unfortunately, so I'll probably garble it, but the weight of this sad time um, we must bear, and I can't remember how it finishes, but that it finishes by the weight of this sad time. Again, Shakespeare's comment on 1606 England. Okay, thank you very much, everybody. God bless. of Athens, and that's one of the m most puzzling plays to me. I was hoping you might actually comment on that. Uh, I don't know it well enough to comment on it. Okay. I mean, one thing I would love to do is to know every single one of the plays as well as know some of the ones I've spoken about, but that's not the, the, uh, the case. So, yeah, we'll have, to, have another conference. Playing then. to one's strength <laughs> is always a good idea, huh? <laughs> Huguenot, so H-U-G, H-U-G-U-E-N, H -U -G -G -U -G -U -E O-T. So they were Protestants from France, and in this country there was a you know, religious struggle, and the Catholics won, and the Huguenots went into exile, and they were welcomed by England's Protestant government and given all sorts of special rights, and they could open their own churches, etc. So uh, that's so that's he stayed in the Huguenot family, which means he didn't have to pay exempt exempt from having to go to to uh, yeah.